Well, good morning. Yes. Good morning. Our text for today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 3. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, as Matt mentioned this week, we are beginning our series of Lenten sermons on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I was reading a book in preparation for this sermon uh, by Gordon Fee about the Holy Spirit, and he relates this anecdote uh, about one of his students. He's a seminary professor, and one of his students, uh, upon hearing teaching uh, regarding the Holy Spirit, came up to him and said this, God the Father makes perfect sense to me. God the Son, I can quite understand, but the Holy Spirit is a gray, oblong blur. Huh. Right? Um, I I think that's the case with many of us. I mean, of of course, we're good Trinitarians. We have good doctrine in our mouths when we say it together, when we confess it together. But down in our belief centers where things really matter, the Holy Spirit, maybe to many of us, is elusive, not comprehensible, more like a gray, oblong blur. Now, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to Wind. Remember this in John chapter 3? You look outside, you see the branches and the leaves swaying and bent under the wind, but you don't see the wind. The wind is actually invisible, and so is the Holy Spirit. And what we wish, I think, if we could be honest, is that the Spirit of God would be uninvisible. At least I do. We're told in so many ways that the Holy Spirit is vital to our redemption. Jesus even taught us that we are better off with him physically gone so that he could be present with us by his spirit. To which, if we're honest, we very much wonder if it's true. So the goal of this sermon then is to try to bring that gray oblong blur into color and into focus. And I'm not going to I don't intend to, nor am I capable of, solving every mystery about the Spirit. That would be impossible. Rather, all I want to do is to take the Bible and ask it a simple question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And then see how it answers us. So that's our question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And I think that the answer will dazzle you. I think it will move you to deep love and admiration of God. So let's get started. Let's ask the scripture this question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what we find is that the answer begins on the very first page of scripture in Genesis chapter 1. In the first two verses, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. Now, let's first take in the setting of all of this. In the beginning, it says, the earth was formless and void. Everything that existed in verse 2 was chaotic and filled with darkness. Everything was out of joint and disordered. But then we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And we're already plunged into mystery. And that mystery, you may not see here, but it's a mystery on the level of vocabulary. Now, you may or may not know that the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. And the word that we translate as spirit is the Hebrew word ruach. And if you were to trace this word all the way through the scriptures what you would find, or at least through the Hebrew scriptures, what you would find is that that word, ruach, is always translated in one of three ways into English. The first way the word is translated is wind. This is the energy that courses through the trees and shakes the leaves. In other cases, it's translated as breath. The ruach is what's being pushed out of my lungs right now and vibrating along my vocal cords and giving power to the words that my teeth and tongue are forming so that you can hear them. That's the ruach. And then in other places, the word is translated as spirit. And in that way, it refers to the internal being of a person. And specifically, it's the place where the will lives, the affections live. And there's so many places I can go to prove that, but let me just give you a brief example in Psalm 51. Dave pra- David prays, Dave. He's <laughs> a, bu- a buddy of mine. Um, if you remember, <laughs> David prays that God would give him a willing spirit. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So David would say that the spirit is the essence of who he is, his very life. And so here in the beginning, We have this chaotic creation and the ruach of God hovering over the waters. And what's really interesting is that God is about to bring, if you know anything about the rest of Genesis 1, he's about to bring order to all that is chaotic and all that is dark. And how does he do it? By speaking. He speaks these things into order. The ruach of God gives life and force and efficacy to his words. And that's exactly what we see over the course of this first chapter in Genesis. The spirit of God hovering over the waters, bringing order out of chaos and light into darkness. And we get an account then of the six days uh, and what that ordering looked like. And frankly, the order itself and all of that occurred is beyond the scope of this sermon. But what we need to notice is that every time the creator God, by his spirit, brings order to this world, there is the divine benediction. It is good. Which is to say, it is beautiful. It is upright. It is lovely. Now, the crowning achievement of the creation narrative is the creation of humanity. They're created from dust. God breathes into them. And they are made in the image of God himself. And what's most astonishing about all of that is that God himself dwells 
with them. You remember, he, he used to walk with them in the cool of the day in the garden. And so the chaos and the darkness of verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 1 has now, in this later part of Genesis 2, has now been overcome by God's spirit and all is well. Do you see that? Okay. Now, the biblical word for this is shalom. And I don't know a better definition than the one provided for us by Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Now, let me show you what he, how he defines shalom. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Doesn't your heart sing at that? Oh, my. Okay, so the first chapter of Genesis, we have the beginning of our answer. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings order out of chaos and who ordered the world in such a way as to leave it in a perpetual state of shalom. Okay, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. But you know that the order of that shalom doesn't last very long. In chapter 3, the serpent enters the garden, deceives the man and the woman, and they rebel against the goodness of God, and they reject him by sinning. Now, we tend to think of sin as like a transgression of a law. And that's, that's true. That, that is a good definition of sin. But that would be along the lines of saying... Um, that on September 11th, 2001, men crashed planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. That's true. But if you were alive for that, like, that is, that is, that is the barest minimum of what actually occurred. If you were alive for that, you, you remember the fear of that day. You remember the devastation, the weeping, the uncertainty. You remember the death toll. You remember the shaking loose of our sense of security and safety. That's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Yes, they broke a law, but more than that, they vandalized and unraveled the shalom of God. And in doing so, God cursed the ground. Humanity was exiled from the garden in which was the presence of God. And do you see what happened? I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms before, but look at what happened. In Genesis 1, the world was chaos and darkness, but God's spirit hovered over the waters and brought order and beauty and shalom to the whole thing. By the end of Genesis 3, on account of sin, the world is plunged back into darkness and sin and judgment and chaos. So what's going to happen in the midst of this chaos of sin, this chaos of curse? The Spirit of God will come hovering over the waters. Those waters 
include our despair, our separation from God, and he will bring order out of that chaos once again. And that is the story of the rest of the Bible. How the Holy Spirit brings order out of the chaos and the darkness and the judgment of our sin. So, let's keep pulling on this thread and see where it leads us. How is it that the Holy Spirit will restore all that is lost? How is it that the Holy Spirit, faced with this almost unmanageable darkness, chaos, destruction, how is it that he will order it again? How is it that he will bring shalom back to the earth? Well, uh, the next place we see God's spirit is in the story of Joseph. Uh, You'll recall that Joseph was an Israelite who was sold into Egypt uh, into slavery by his jealous brothers, and he spent many years in prison because of a false accusation, and then he was brought to the throne of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you might recall, was having some troubling dreams, and Joseph had a reputation as somebody who could interpret troubling dreams. And so after Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, a correct interpretation is given. And Pharaoh's response is this in Genesis 41, 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So here we see that it is the Holy Spirit who provides Joseph with the proper interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. Now, how does this demonstrate that the Spirit brings order out of the chaos of this world? It just seems like an interpretation of a dream. Well, because Pharaoh, you may remember, was so impressed with Joseph's wisdom, he promoted him to his right-hand man. And when the Israelites trek down to Egypt because of a famine in their own lands, they find an Israelite running the food distribution, namely Joseph. And so the nation of Israel found a home in Egypt because of the favor that Joseph had accrued from the Pharaoh. And they were cared for as they were cared for by one of their own. But over the course of many years, many pharaohs, the Israelites lost their favor and instead became a nation of slaves under the Egyptian whip. And it was this, precisely this lamentable situation that precipitated the greatest redemption that occurred in all of the Old Testament, which is to say the Exodus. So, how is the Spirit bringing order to the chaos of sin? By redeeming the people of God from bondage. You see that? And it all began with the Spirit-inspired interpretation of a dream. Okay. Now, this next part is very important to the story. However, it's not immediately obvious what it has to do with the Spirit, but just put it in your pocket We'll get back to it. After God brings his people out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he leads them to Mount Sinai where he descends upon the mountain and delivers to Moses the Ten Commandments. But while Moses is on the mountain, the people who have been redeemed by God's hand out of the house of slavery in Egypt, those very same people make for themselves idols. And as Moses is coming down the mountain, he sees them in the valley. He's literally carrying the tablets of the covenant 
He sees them in the valley dancing like madmen, dancing like pagans in front of the gods that they have made for themselves. And it gets even worse. Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, actually fashioned these idols for them, holds them up to the congregation and says, Behold, O Israel, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. It's a terrible story. And as a result of this, God deals them a judgment that terrifies them. He says, I will not allow my presence to go among you any longer. So the redeemed people of God, those who are redeemed at the initiation of the Spirit of God, have once again lost the presence of God by their sin. But Moses refuses. He says, that cannot be. There there is no way that we are going anywhere without you. Listen to what he says in Exodus 33. Moses, this is verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Not those people in the valley. They have forsaken me. But you, Moses, you have found favor in my sight. Now, we we have to reach into the New Testament, actually, to understand what this presence of God was. This presence of God was the spirit of God. Now, we're going to I'm going to try to demonstrate that a little bit later. But the presence of God here is the Spirit of God. And how is it that the Lord then, having made this promise to Moses, okay, I will go with you. I will allow my presence. I will allow my Spirit to go with you. How is it that he will remain among them? Because the Lord's concern is that if I am among you, I will consume you. So how will he do it? And the answer is by sacrifice. Now, here's where we get to the next mention of the Spirit of God. Uh, God had given Moses on the mountain detailed instructions to build a portable place of worship, which he called the tabernacle. And this tabernacle was not just to be functional, it was to be beautiful. And watch what God provides. Exodus 31, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And it would be a great burden to you and take far too long for me to explain and list out all of the different elements of beauty that Bezalel was tasked to make. But you should know that the artistic work of the tabernacle, listen to this, you should know that the artistic work of the tabernacle, all the things that Bezalel is tasked with making, is a copy of the creation. Have you ever noticed that? Go, go read through the, uh, the accounts of the instructions of the tabernacle. All that they are going to make, all that they are going to do to beautify the tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. For example, there was a giant water basin out in the front, which was to be the sea. Into the wood, Bezalel was to carve trees and fruits and all manner of representations of the creation. And that's astonishing to me, that a new creation is being formed in miniature... And that the very power to do so came from the Spirit of God who inspired the first creation. So the Spirit hovered over the waters and made a good creation. And now the Spirit, so to speak, hovers over Bezalel and orders this microcosm of creation called the tabernacle, which will be the place where God dwells with his people. It's astonishing to me. Um, so, so where are we so far in our answer to our question? Who is the Holy Spirit? So far, we've seen that the Holy Spirit brings order out of chaos. And this is the means by which God dwells with his people. So far, so good. Now, here's where the tragedy arrives. After the people of God were born through the wilderness for 40 years, they entered a promised land which they could never conquer, earn, merit by themselves. They established their lives there by grace. And eventually they asked for a king. God gave them one. And the third king of Israel, Solomon, built for them a temple which was a permanent version of the tabernacle. And it was now the temple which was the place where God dwelt among his people. But the nation of Israel was a stiff-necked people. Every generation, they devised new innovations on that original sin in the garden. They simply could not keep themselves from worshiping other gods. And the one who saved them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, they, they forsook and took up the idols of their hands. And though the Lord sent his spirit into the prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, although he sent the prophets full of his spirit to warn the people of their covenant breaking and the requisite judgment that would accompany it, they threw off all restraint in, in numberless ways. They gave themselves to their idols, and in doing so, they did all they could do to unravel the ordering work of redemption that the Spirit had accomplished over many generations. And finally, after generations of forbearance 
from God. After generations of covering over their sins by sacrifice, they finally went too far. The prophet Ezekiel, God gives him a vision as a result of this. If you've ever read Ezekiel, you know that his visions include some very puzzling images like cherubim, which are like angels and wings and wheels and different faces and all this sort of thing. But the only thing you really need to know to make sense of the following passage is that in the Jewish temple, within the most holy place, that was where the presence of God dwelt. And within that place, the Ark of the Covenant sat. And on its lid was a seat. They called it the mercy seat. And surrounding the mercy seat on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant were angels, golden angels, whose wings covered over the mercy seat. This seat was the throne of God. Remember, he said, you shall not represent me in any physical way. And so this empty seat was the throne of God. This is where the invisible God sat to reign over his people. Now, Ezekiel chapter 10 Verses 15 through 19. Listen to, the, listen to the vision he was given. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Shebar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with their wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now, in case you missed it, what Ezekiel saw in that moment was the departing of the presence of God from the temple. It's, it's no longer in the most holy place. The presence of God is now at the east gate. Their rampant breaking of the covenant had finally resulted in the ultimate judgment. You have been left alone. The spirit who had worked for hundreds of generations to bring order out of the chaos of their sin finally went up from the temple and departed. Now, come back to the way Moses prayed to the Lord. You remember this in Exodus 33, starting in verse 15. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. For Moses, for Moses, if the Lord would not be with them, it meant death. It meant destruction for the nation. So much so that Moses said he wouldn't even go to the promised land if God removed his presence among them. And that is all that they deserved after the golden calf incident, by the way. But what's astonishing is that the Lord, in his mercy for the people, 
he provides them with his presence because one man found favor in his sight. The Lord told him, because you, Moses, because you have found favor in my sight, I will go among you. So because one man found favor, his presence went with them. But now, after this Ezekiel vision, now the people are forsaken. Moses understands how devastating it would be to be the people of God without the presence of God, without the spirit of God. But now it has happened. They are left bereft without a man like Moses to lead them into the wilderness. And so for generation after generation, after Ezekiel's vision, the chaos of sin grew more chaotic. The darkness of iniquity grew so black as to blind them, and there was no hope. But then one day, (laughs) one day, a man named Jesus. This is preacher from the northern district of Galilee. He's standing on the banks of the Jordan River. And down in the river is a prophet named John who is calling out to all of Israel to come down into the waters and be baptized for the repentance of their sins. And Jesus himself walks down into the water. Though he needed no repentance from sin, he walks down into the water. John plunges him under, and when he comes up, watch what happens. Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, hovering, descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Did you you see that? At the baptism of Jesus, the spirit of God returns to dwell with his people. In Jesus, we have a second and better Moses. Because of one man's righteousness, God returned to dwell with his people by his spirit. And with the Spirit hovering over the waters of our judgment and destruction, the words that come out of Jesus' mouth are almost unbearably sweet. He says, behold, I am making, creating, I am making all things new. And indeed he did. By the power of the Spirit, Christ reversed the chaos of sin, and the vandalism of shalom by making blind people see, by raising people from the dead, by casting out oppressive demons with power and authority. But in the end, the stiff-necked people of Israel could not bear the presence of God among them, and they condemned him to death. And the Gospel of John tells us that in the final moment of his life, Jesus said to the Father, I commend my spirit to you. And then he breathed his last, and the Ruach of God departed from him. And in doing this, in this one act, he made sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins 
The same kind of sacrifice that occurred year after year after year in the tabernacle and then later the temple by the blood of goats and lambs and bulls. But in this sacrifice, he made sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins that had kept God from dwelling directly among his people since Adam and Eve. But when that happened, Jesus commends his spirit to the Father upon his death. And so the question, if you live at that moment, if you're alive there, the question then becomes, does that mean that all that the Spirit had made new through him would come undone yet again? And the answer is no. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave by the power of God, and in his resurrected state, he taught his disciples this in Luke chapter 24. Then... He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48, you are my witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And as it happened, Jesus ascends at that point, leaves them, and they're all huddled. A couple weeks later, they're all huddled in a locked room together in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. And then something astonishing happened, and we see it in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In this momentous act, the Spirit returns to the people of God, and God himself, by his Spirit, dwells with his people never to depart again. Yes, and why do I say he will never depart again? Because the possession of God's spirit by the church of Christ is given to them not based on their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of another. You see, God dwelt, remember, God dwelt with Israel because of the righteousness of one man. Moses was found acceptable in his sight. But Moses, remember, Moses on the borderlands of the promised land died and was buried and went with the people no more. But Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again. And it is on the basis of his righteousness that the sins of God's people are forgiven and God's presence will be with them. And there's more. Let's go one step further. Listen to the Apostle Paul speak of the magnificent privilege we possess as God's people recreated in Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. So then, listen to this, people of God, listen. So then, you, it's a plural you, y'all, you are no longer strangers and aliens But you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church of Jesus Christ is the new temple on earth, the tabernacle of God, where he dwells on this earth by his Spirit. As we gather here today in this very moment, the Spirit of God dwells among us and in us. I mean, look around at the people sitting beside you. Together we make up the tabernacle of God, God's dwelling place on this earth. And in this group of people, the Spirit has hovered over the waters of our darkness and said, let there be light. He has brought order out of the chaos. He has brought blessing out of judgment. He has brought peace with God and the reweaving of shalom. However, that is the blessing that we possess in this room and everywhere the church of God gathers. But all across this world, there still exists a formless void. The vandalism of shalom and all of its effects still tear at people's minds, still tear at people's souls. For them, the presence of God has left the temple and they have no hope, even if they don't know it. But what they do not know, because they can't see it, is that God, in his unfathomable mercy, has sent the Spirit to hover over the waters of their chaos and destruction, and he intends to make something beautiful from the material of that destruction. And he does that by sending people filled with the Spirit of God, bearing his presence to them with the simplest and yet profoundest of all announcements, we have good news. And that work of the Spirit's redemption, this reweaving of shalom, that work will carry on until the resurrected Christ returns in the clouds with great power, great authority, and great glory. And in that day, all the Spirit's work of redemption out of the chaos of sin will result in the people of God before his throne. And listen to what it says about that moment in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, literally, tabernacle. Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In that day, the work of creation, of new creation, will be accomplished. It's everything the first creation should have been, but better. And there, after the work of redemption is done, after, after the fabric that has been rent asunder has been rewoven into the shalom of God, after that moment, God will dwell by his spirit. He will tabernacle with his people. And of the increase of his shalom, there shall be no end. Now, we come to this table, as we do every week. And if I'm, Christ hosts us at this table, it is his table, but if I may say it in this manner, this is a place where the spirit hovers. This is a place where chaos is brought into order. Every single one of us, whether we are God's children or not, every single one of us comes in here every week with our desires, our loves, our affections out of joint, disordered. And when Jesus invites us to this table, it is to remind us that it is by the righteousness of another that God dwells with us. And that spirit by which he dwells in us can never be taken from us. It's a taste. The, the spirit of God, he, he, his presence within us is a taste of this day when he will tabernacle with us forever. So if you want to know what that tastes like, it's before you. So let us pray. Father in heaven, you know that without your mercy and without your grace, without your astounding forbearance of our sins, we would not be fit to be built into your temple. We would not be fit as dwelling places of your spirit. And yet, you have made us fit. You've laid Christ as the cornerstone, and all of us are built upon him. It is the most staggering privilege that we know of, that you dwell with us and that you bring order out of the chaos within us. So I pray now, Father, grant us help to remember the Spirit's work, to submit to his leading, and to find that your shalom is being rewoven even in our inner beings. 
and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.